Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Madeline DeCotes about the astrology of death. Uh, so, hey, Madeline, thanks for joining me. Hey, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here again. Yeah. So, um, we did a little casual astrology chat yesterday in the studio, and then we were just talking this morning here in Denver about um, the topic of death came up. There was a recent like, famous celebrity death uh, with Matthew Perry. Um, there's also just been a huge amount of in the world with in, in the Middle East and, and with everything, a huge amount of death and suffering. And so more serious topics have been on my mind lately. And you mentioned that you had a had a loss in this past year. And I thought it would be interesting um, or good to just like talk about some of that in a topic that I've always meant to do, but I've kind of um, not avoided, but I wasn't sure when or how to do it. And I thought today maybe we would just do a casual chat to talk about this topic more broadly and some of the the details and some of the questions that people have surrounding it. Yeah, I think it's a really important topic to cover because it is something that astrology can speak to. And kind of as we were alluding to yesterday, not only like the the time that we're in with Saturn's transit through Pisces feels apropos to be taking a compassionate look at death as a topic and as loss and grieving um, as a topic, as well as, um, I totally blanked on what else, My, I had another point, but yeah, it's the right time to be talking about death. I think it's maybe it was our other point yesterday that in Western cultures, sometimes we shy away from or are a little bit too nervous, like death is a taboo in our culture whether, where it's not as much in others. So I think it's helpful for people who have experienced loss or who work in death or who have a familiarity in their, you know, their subjective experience of life where death is a common topic. It's nice to give resources to those people so that, yeah, they're not, you know, feeling as alone as what can often happen. Yeah. So, um, so let's talk about that. With the first question is, you know, can astrology speak to death? Is a question that somebody that's just new to the field might have. And I think the answer to the question is yes. That um, astrology can speak to the question of death, both um, in terms of a person's birth chart, to the extent that. Um, the alignment of the planets at the moment that you were born has something to say about the quality of your life and your future. Um, part of that, to some extent, um, can be the end of a person's life and sometimes things surrounding the circumstances surrounding it. So that's one way, obviously, in a more literal way, that people often look to astrology in particular for this question of whether it can speak to the experience of death. But then another way that it actually is related and comes up is in the experiences that the people around a person who's died recently, the way that astrology reflects that in their charts oftentimes speak sometimes even louder than the person themselves who passed away because of the way that it impacts the lives of the people around them. And that's another angle for how this topic, how and why this topic is important um, in terms of how especially astrologers deal with the grieving process, um, as well as just um, how how death in our lives and the experience of that uh, in other people, how it affects us personally. Yeah, that makes sense because we can, I guess, when we think of how the natal chart reflects not only one's own life, one's own experiences, but that 
certain houses or certain planets in the chart will end up representing other people that are in the life. And so if a person experiences a, a death of a loved one, um, or even, you know, the way they might be impacted by the death of a famous figure that they find affinity with, um, we would expect that that should be reflected in the natal chart by some way of, of timing or relationship to a planet that might signify that person or that might signify death. Yeah. I mean, the, the different houses in the chart, it's like the first house relates to you and your sense of self um, and your body and sometimes your physical vitality. But then each of the other houses or many of the other houses in the chart relate to like other people who are in your life and who are close to you in different ways. And sometimes, you know, when those houses are activated in a very difficult way, sometimes it can indicate, not always, obviously there's a whole range of different things, but to the extent that astrology sometimes describes and the transits especially show um, challenges or difficult experiences we have at different parts of our life, um, like the loss of a family member or a loved one or a friend um, is certainly one of the things that astrology can sometimes describe and, and reflect at the time when it's happening. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those points I think that I always like to help beginner astrologers remember or realize is just how much their own natal chart does show, you know, by way of the houses and their rulers, other people like that we're literally talking about other people in your life. Um, and sometimes with a certain planet, it, it might even more so represent other people in your life than it does represent your own personality or your own um, personal choices, things like that. Yeah. And this is actually a big split with modern and ancient astrology, just because in modern, like late 20th century Western astrology, especially in the like English speaking world, um, different parts of the, the the houses started being conceptualized more as like different extensions of the native zone psyche. Um, but in ancient astrology, the different houses sometimes did very literally represent other people in your life. Like the fourth house is representing parents and sometimes things that are objectively occurring in their lives, or the fifth house is children, or the seventh house is the marriage partner or spouse or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, and that's such an important conceptual distinction because that does help you sometimes to understand when you're having a transit, it may not immediately show up as something that's relating to you directly in terms of your like psyche or something like that, but it may just be something that's objectively occurring in the circumstances of your the people around you. Yeah, that's so true. And it makes me think even, you know, in the day that we're in now where we synthesize both modern and ancient astrology, we can see how an event or a transit might represent something happening to someone else in your life. Um, but because we have, I suppose, the ability to, we have like the time and the space and the knowledge on how to, I guess, reflect on our personal experiences, to whatever extent a person does reflect on their own psychology, they might be able to analyze how that event that happened to someone else in their life, their, you know, subsequently affected their own psychology, their own outlook on the world, maybe their personal philosophy. And so there could be a simultaneously external and internal experience that occurs from the same transit, right. but almost like your internal experience is a reaction to or a reflection of this thing that happened external to you or that happened to someone else. Yeah, for sure. And just the 
profound um, way that events and circumstances in the impact that other people have on our lives, the way that that impacts us personally and sometimes impacts our life trajectory and our future and our destiny, um, both when people come into our lives, but also sometimes when people go out of our lives. Yeah. And it just makes me think about how interconnected we are, how um, sort of what we were talking about yesterday with some of the, just like the aspects of human nature, like humans are very social species. Our relationships are super important to us. So when something happens to someone in our web of um, connections, it does intrinsically affect you know, our own experiences of life. So there's this way in which we're not so isolated or individual as we sometimes feel. And it's really interesting to me to see how astrology can reflect that, how I reflect how our own personal experiences and our own natal chart are are caught up in this web of interconnections with other people's experiences and other people's natal charts. Right, for sure. Um, so let's back up a little bit and let's talk first just about the initial thing of can it sometimes be reflected in a person's birth chart, you know, when they pass away? Um, and the answer to that is is yes, um, that sometimes there can be indicators in the birth chart itself, since we know that the birth chart itself can indicate things about health and physical vitality. Um, and that includes sometimes times when a person takes a hit to their physical vitality or they get sick or they get injured can be indicated both in terms of natal placements that show a possibility or a propensity for certain um, types of experiences in that area, but then also when some of those natal placements are activated by transits or time lords, that can show time periods where there's a, a heightened period of likelihood where um, something that could be challenging, you know, or, or threatening to a person's vitality could happen at that time. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's something most of us learn pretty quick in astrology of sometimes looking up the like difficult events in our life. And for some people that can be like a health, health scare or an accident or something like that and seeing what the transits were. And sometimes it's very striking because those sometimes those negative or those difficult events in our lives are the things that are the most vivid that we remember the most. And so when you see the astrology lining up with that on those days, it can be very um, compelling or very impressive. Absolutely. And it, it makes me think as well, kind of what you're saying with the various timing techniques or the various um, significators that might come into play when a person experiences like, a, you know, a minor illness versus a major illness or a, you know, a series of unfortunate events that might lead to a major tragedy or a death where, you know, we don't need to be afraid of, say, like a singular transit through our eighth house or what have you. There can be these stacking components that could pinpoint, you know, what are the most vulnerable periods of time for the life of the native. And it's not just you know, every time Pluto aspects your sun or Saturn transits your eighth, for instance, there may there might need to be several variables to come into play to describe a significantly unfortunate experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there usually are multiple indications or sometimes for the biggest events, like there's multiple techniques that will point to the same like nexus that's very important as a turning point in a person's life, like a nexus in time. 
Um, but for like accidents or injuries, it's like like Frida Kahlo is like a famous example mm -hmm. um, because she had so many planets in the sixth and twelfth that were in very tense configurations, and then that was activated when she was famously injured um, in this like bus or train accident, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was like a particularly you know gruesome and appalling injury that then set uh, you know totally changed the trajectory of her life so you would want to know like say if a person just casually has some sixth house placements or some 12th house placements they might not know how to compare their own chart to someone like Frida Kahlo who had such a significant and life-changing accident occur you know there's sometimes I see people have those questions when they have placements in the sixth they'll say well you know how how unfortunate am I? Or how much does this talk to my own experiences of accidents versus me being someone who perhaps works in the medical field or, or something like that and helps other people with their misfortunes rather than it being a personal signification? For sure. Yeah, that's a really good point that sometimes the energy gets um, subsumed by um, using it somehow or harnessing it and redirecting it in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not always possible necessarily, but there's different ways that those placements can manifest. But it brings up one of the important points when talking about this topic, which is that sometimes it's hard as an astrologer to distinguish between like a transit like for example, those sixth house transits with her twelfth house transits that in indicates a major injury or illness that's life threatening, and whether it's something that actually indicates the end of the person's life, or whether it just indicates a major health setback or bodily setback at that time, and that's one of the most tricky things because in the ancient in ancient Hellenistic astrology, like one of the most talked about techniques and one of the most important techniques was a technique that they tried to develop in order to predict the length of a person's life. Um, but in a lot of the like contemporary discussions about this over the past 20 or 30 years, um, not just here, but also sometimes in the Vedic community, I remember Dennis Harness, one of my Indian astrology teachers, um, talked about this as well. But just, you know, there's many things in the ancient world when um medicine was different and when life expectancy was so much shorter that could have you know indicated the end of a person's life much sooner because it would have been harder to recover from or, or fix certain life-threatening things um, so that but but nowadays with advances in medical technology and stuff there's a question about whether techniques like some of the ancient techniques for indicating the length of life are actually indicating the length of life firmly and, and in a fixed way, or if it's indicating periods where the person takes a major hit to their vitality where they could exit, um, you know, if if it's not treated or if there's not some sort of major medical in intervention or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a whole topic and we don't have to get too much into it, but it's relevant here since that naturally comes up, the question of like length of life. And um, I've put off like doing an episode on that technique but one of these days I, I might cover it if I can figure out a way to do it carefully um, because I don't think that, like for me, sometimes it would work in indicating things for certain people, but other times it wouldn't work. And I never fully worked out if that's due to the advances in medical technology and if that's the reason or, or why that is exactly. 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. I hadn't really considered that point about it before that it it would be difficult to assess or predict now because cultural circumstances surrounding medicine are so different than they were then. Um, it would have to yeah take probably um, just more time studying yeah in the modern context whether or not it can accurately predict death or like you're saying if that technique can um, only now predict instances where you might you know in ancient times you might have died but now you're just experiencing a you know a traumatic health event right yeah and if that's what it's really representing rather than really representing in a very fixed sense like exactly when a person will die mm-hmm. um it's like so that's a scenario and that's one scenario of like what we're able to see in in astrology is periods in which health and vitality might you know highs and lows for that and periods where a person might take a major hit and therefore where there's there's the possibility that they could you know that could be too much for their system to handle at that time and could pass away um you know on the other hand sometimes and especially as a student i found that explanation like deeply unsatisfi- unsatisfying because i was like well if it's designed to say the length of life it should tell you the length of life like no matter what and there's certainly like another perspective where um for some people when you study their birth chart and you study the end of their life you do sometimes see this confluence of a bunch of different factors both astrologically and and in terms of the circumstances that led up to their their death that do seem very faded and very like this was the time when this person was almost like meant to die in some sense in terms of fate or in terms of their destiny and having reached the end of their story and that the astrology did seem to point very loudly to that so that it seemed much more um, the result of a natural narrative of the story of their life that had come to completion at that time rather than something that was like optional or or just like a, a hit to their vitality that they could have passed by or something like that i should say yeah if that makes sense it does yeah it makes me think about how um just again kind of thinking about mitigation techniques or to what extent do does a person who might have something that is indicating a um an unfortunate circumstance that could result in death but they have people in their lives or they have access to medicine that changes it um but i'd see what you're saying too with perhaps with like zodiacal releasing or other sort of narrative based uh, techniques where it just <laughs> almost like when your story just kind of wraps up neatly and you go that yeah that makes sense that that's the end of the life but by contrast where you know, because we're referencing um sort of like the the massive amount of deaths occurring you know you would think prematurely um in in the world right now due to you know bombings and such um, I'm wondering if there's anything that can, you know, how do we how do we study that, or how do we analyze when a, like a large group of people die together in a way that, you know, to what extent could we predict that in the natal chart that one would find their death in a um, in a mass tragedy? Yeah, that's um, like a larger. Um sort of separate issue about mundane astrology and something that astrologers talk about which is like the the law of subsumption which is that 
each of us is always in all of our individual birth charts are always operating within the context of like a larger set of mundane charts that mm-hmm. that relate to the groups that we're part of or the larger um yeah, d- different larger groups on different scales that go up and up and up in terms of like um, regions and, and countries or, or families or other things like that. Um, and that sometimes when it comes to major events that affect like a lot of people, that it pertains sometimes more to like a major mundane alignment. Like, for example, in 2020, we had that Saturn Pluto alignment, that conjunction and that conjunction of many planets, and that, you know, a lot of people got sick and, and died in the world at that time. And that the Saturn Pluto alignment, especially, was one of the signatures for that that tends to coincide with things like that in the same way that, like, in the 1980s, when the AIDS, pe- AIDS um, pandemic really took off and became known publicly and people started trying to to deal with it and wrestle with the the issue um that there was another saturn pluto alignment and so these periods in which there's like mass large amounts of of death sometimes being indicated by mundane indicators um with things like that or things like eclipses for example i think that's one of the reasons why eclipses have been associated with disasters and and things like that sometimes because sometimes it's relating to large groups of people rather than just singular individuals. Mm, yeah, that's really interesting to, I guess, to address that, the law of subsumption, that you might not be able to see a an indicator of death in a natal chart, but because that individual is part of a, like a larger operating, uh, like society level chart, the indicator for death is in the the chart of that society or that nation or that just general mundane event that you know, the the Saturn Pluto transit cycle is such a, a like a far reaching cycle that it could subsume um, individual or like just minor charts within it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically, and that there's country charts. Like I remember. When like 9-11 happened, there was a lot of discussion about the Saturn-Pluto opposition, which was going exact at that time in Sagittarius and Cancer, Sagittarius and Gemini, and that that was right on the ascendant-descendant axis of like the United States. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you know, there was a broader country chart that was indicating um, major negative things at the time. And in some way that gets manifested in the individual lives of a large group of people who are, you know, subsumed by that country chart in some ways at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, Or, you know, even more recently, we had talked on the last forecast and in the part two of the eclipses episode a little bit about how, um, you know, the chart of Israel had Libra rising. And so Libra um, was where that eclipse just took place last month. Um, so that there's different charts sometimes that are telling you things for the country or, or region or group as a whole that are being indicated sometimes for, for lots of people. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes me wonder too, if then on the individual uh, nativity level, you could see a person who, who might have been caught up in a, I guess a, a in a nationwide tragedy, but who who made it out alive or, you know, who either um, escaped with, um, I guess, injuries that didn't end up being life-threatening or managed to 
not be in like people who maybe were going to work in say the twin towers on the morning of September 11th, but who for whatever reason had something that pulled them away from work that day. And so is there, are there particular indicators in an individual nativity that show the good fortune of maybe like escaping death of being in the right place at the, or not being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Yeah, for sure. Like the story of like the person who was supposed to be on like one of the planes, but like changed his plane at the last minute for like 9-11 or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And, and then w was tremendously lucky, therefore, um, to not end up there in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a lot of like broader things like that. Um I think that does take us back to a point that you mentioned, though, earlier on that would have been a good establishing point that traditionally astrologers associate like the eighth house in a birth chart with death um, as a main topic for um, sometimes how that comes up, both in a way that relates sometimes personally, either in the person's life, but other times in the way that death can sometimes play a role in the person's life, even if it's not their own. Mm -hmm. um, but you and I, I think what actually started this discussion was this morning was um, the death of like Matthew Perry and we that we have a birth time for him and he was an actor who a famous actor that was in Friends the move the sitcom in the 1990s as well as a few movies um, but that he um, passed away about a week ago the day of a lunar eclipse. And then I went back and noticed that he was actually born within a week of a lunar eclipse. And um, what was also notable is that he had Leo rising and Saturn was stationing retrograde the week that he died um, in his eighth house. Mm, in the stationing direct. Stationing direct, right, mm -hmm. at zero degrees of Pisces in his eighth house um, in the sign of Pisces, which we just talked about on the forecast episode, how there had been all these weird incidents involving like water and negative things surrounding water the last time that Saturn stationed in Pisces in June, where we had that um, horrific sort of like submarine implosion um, that the media was so focused on the week that Saturn stationed retrograde in Pisces. So we had made some statements about that in the forecast for this upcoming station. And then after that came out, um, Matthew Perry ended up um, reportedly like passing out and like drowning in a hot tub. Mm -hmm. um, but it, but Saturn was stationing like in his eighth house of death in the sign of Pisces, which is a water sign. And if you go back and read like Vadius Valens from the second century, he's constantly talking about the eighth house water signs and Saturn as being related to death in water. Um, so it's like his death in some weird way was weirdly symbolized by the astrology that was happening at the time. Um, and I'm not, I don't want to focus on that too much in the sense of that it happened so recently. And sometimes it can be, there can be a distastefulness sometimes when astrologers rush to comment on the death of deaths of recent media personalities. Um, so I want to talk about that respectfully. Um, but also it sort of goes to the point of what we're talking about, where sometimes there can be these weird um, symbolic ways in which when a person does pass away, especially prematurely or in an, in an accident that's unique, that the astrology can describe that in some ways. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think the other thing about 
Matthew Perry or the reason why I started talking about him this morning was it was almost more in this fourth house way where the fourth house can be associated with um, like the, I guess the legacy of, of the person, like how they'll be remembered at the end of life. I see that referenced occasionally. And um, I was reading this article in the New York times written by his friend, Hank Azaria, um, who, who was just describing how much, I guess, Matthew Perry meant to him in terms of a person who helped him with his own uh, substance abuse recovery and was almost like this spiritually inspiring figure to him. Um, and I noticed that Matthew Perry had the moon in Scorpio in the fourth house, like ruling the twelfth house. And so there's this way in which, I guess, this the description that the author was talking about of these experiences going to AA meetings was like, this was how they discovered what God is to them and that um, they were describing God as this sense of community or fellowship with other people who are trying to recover from their, their darkest days or the darkest hours, people who are um, being like sharing their most vulnerable experiences with each other, people who are helping one another to realize and accept that there's, you know, there's nothing to be ashamed of in life, that you're not uniquely alone in your experiences of tragedy or of your, your experiences of um, personal suffering or, you know, a loss of self-control, et cetera, that there's always other people who are having similar or even more um, tragic experiences than you. And so this way in which it felt to me like a very, this like Scorpio boon or this cancer 12th kind of expression of being remembered for someone who nurtured community around the struggle and loss and fellowship in this way. Yeah. And I think that's something he wanted to be known for. And he made some like statement to that effect of like, I hope mm -hmm. he's like, I understand when I pass away at some point, like I'll be known primarily as the guy that was on friends and as an actor and stuff. But he says, but what I hope I'm also known for is like that I tried to help people that struggled with addiction and tried to use my own struggles to to help other people that were dealing with the same thing. Mm -hmm. And it just makes me think about, you know, in addition to the eighth house, like the various signs that have more of a proclivity to either experience matters related to loss or struggle or death, et cetera, or, or who are drawn to, if not experiencing them, to like communing with other people around them. And, you know, we, it's almost like a trope, but we see like Scorpio being one of those signs that does attract, um, I guess, fellowship around loss or personal experiences related to loss. And so there's, it's one of those things where we don't have that necessarily that uh, modern astrological take on like the ABCs of the, you know, Scorpio equals eighth house, but it's interesting to look at maybe other places in the chart that describe experiences like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was glad you mentioned the fourth house because that was something I know about 10 years ago when I was doing a lot of my research for my book and for my course on Hellenistic astrology and putting together like the perfections lectures that like the fourth house kept coming up um, for death. And that was one of the, the eighth house was not the only house that was looked at for death, but also mm -hmm. the fourth house was related to death and legacy and things like that. And to some extent, the seventh house as well as the place where the sun sets each day mm -hmm. and, and sort of metaphorically dies and then goes under the earth. 
Um, but the fourth house kept coming up. And like one of the ways that was interesting was in a fourth house perfection year um, that always happens at the age of 27. And so it's like you get those mm -hmm. weird um, things that happen sometimes, like the the quote unquote like twenty seven club mm -hmm. of like musicians that have passed away at the age of twenty seven, and whether that's partially a reflection of um, that like fourth house perfection year, but it's just a house that in modern astrology we don't usually associate with the death, but in ancient astrology they very much did because it's the place essentially like furthest under the ground under under the earth. Mm -hmm. And I've. Um I guess I was reading Demetra George's volume two of ancient astrology and theory and practice, and um, yeah, it was, you kind of chuckled to yourself because you see how many yeah, how many houses in the chart have death as one of their significations, and um, trying to tease apart like, which ones indicate personal death or which ones indicate just other topics related to death. And um, she was describing that in the in the ancient world or in Greek society, this association with even the fourth house being both a person's home and having a death association um, felt like it could represent the way in which, and it's, again, it's just, this is, I'm not an expert in um, ancient Greek culture, but um, she was describing how as a, as you would enter a home, maybe in ancient Greek society, there would be uh, altars or shrines to deceased relatives sort of in the, as you're coming into the home so this cultural relationship with the ancestors or with the you know the dead ones who have come before you who you want to daily um, keep in your thoughts or you know even pay gratitude to or pay homage to was more a part that's like there's some associations there with the home and with the the deceased ones yeah for sure i see that come up a lot um the fourth house relates to parents but also your ancestors and ancestry and um, the past of your family and that sometimes when the fourth house is activated um, people can go through these periods of really wanting to know more about their ancestry and their past ancestors and and um, things like that which can involve sometimes like researching you know records of like family members that have passed away from your history in order to understand in some ways, like where you came from or what your family origins were. Mm -hmm. It's making me wonder again about just the topic of subsumption, where perhaps in a fourth house activation, does one like subsume to the the patterns of one's ancestors? Perhaps if there is some, I mean, just what often happens in the like the quote unquote twenty seven club is that there's some level of um, like a substance use that ends up being related to the death and. You know, if a person dies from substance use, there's often a perhaps like a an an, not necessarily an ancestral, but something that relates to their their childhood experiences that um, might have contributed to their psychology being one who is particularly vulnerable, I guess, to substances. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of different there's different reasons that people struggle with like addiction and addiction issues and um, different motivations for that of different experiences in a person's background. Mm -hmm. But I do know that. So I don't. I can't speak to that. But I can say I know there was at least one instance where I had found a connection between like the ruler of the sixth and the ruler of the fourth, and there was a, a famous writer who. And it had inherited like a genetic disorder from his father, and um, 
and it was I think it was it was a order where he ran into more and more cognitive issues the long the older he got and then his father ended up killing himself and then the person ended up killing himself in the end as well um so that sometimes yeah there can be things like that in terms of like things that we inherit like let's say a genetic or disorder from our parents that can cause you know trouble or be, or be tricky in, in terms of our own life mm-hmm. so ways in which more broadly speaking i guess the way in which to phrase that is like way in which the past or our family past can it can affect our life in the present is like one of the ways that the fourth house that can be relevant very broadly speaking exactly yeah so then perhaps and i have yeah, some sort of fourth house activation the the past um is more is more present in the life of the native in some way that is you know, not necessarily detrimental, but depending on other factors, um, could indicate some kind of threat to the life of the native. Yeah, or just a way that it influences things. Um, yeah, because there's so many different circumstances. There's such a wide yeah. range of different ex- circumstances, and I think that's one of the most important things is that astrology is a symbolic language that describes. The range of experiences that a person is probably going to have, but it does so symbolically. And as a result of that, you can develop very strong ideas about what you think it will mean. But until the day comes and until you get to that time and you've seen how the person's life plays out, you can never know for sure exactly 100% how that placement's going to work out, even if you have a very strong idea or pretty good um, informed inference about what it's going to mean. And I think that's one of the things that's an important caution when people get into this topic right away is they should not develop um, a really intense assumption or, 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 or um, thoughts about exactly how their, their life or their death is going to play out. Because sometimes you can be off and you're even if you're like broadly correct archetypally about like the direction things might go, you can still be like wildly off in the specifics so that it's not a good idea to develop like an unhealthy sort of like fascination with trying to figure out like one's death or, or something like that. Mm, yeah. So it's sort of that metaphor of like in using a predictive tool in astrology, you can see perhaps like the shadows on the wall, almost like Plato's allegory of the cave. Like we can see the shadows on the wall, but that's not actual life. Uh, the, the actual life experience we'll have uh, will be, you know, the, the people who are casting the shadows. So we're getting this kind of future glimpse of what what the shadow play looks like, but uh, we can't, we don't exactly know what the full embodied three dimensional experience uh, will end up coalescing into within that range of possible archetypes. Yeah, well, and astrology is very contextual, and it's like the more context you know the more accurate you'll be able to interpret the astrology about how things are going to play out. But especially when you're talking about timeframes like 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years in the future, you have so little context about who you'll be and where your life will be at that time that it can be very difficult to um, say in the very firm specifics um, you know, certain things about it. Mm-hmm. But that's part of the tension with astrology just in general. Yeah. So let's go back and redirect because I know um, 
you know, one of the things we talked about yesterday was we talked about eclipses. I've been talking about eclipses a lot. Um, but you said that you have been like personally dealing with like a personal loss in your life over the past year. Mm -hmm. um, and I was curious what, because one of the things is, I guess the way to open this topic is one of the reasons why it's important is because astrologers, when they learn astrology and you become an astrologer, and by that I mean a person who regularly looks at their birth chart and applies astrology to their everyday life. Um, I, I classify anybody that does that essentially as an astrologer, um, that astrologers, one of the ways that they grieve and cope with death is by looking at the astrology both in their chart as well as the person who passed away and other people around them as a way of sometimes trying to understand what happened to get some perspective on it, to sometimes understand the broader meaning and purpose of things. Um, and that's just kind of like part of the grieving process, I feel like, for astrologers, which on the one hand is a way of almost like intellectualizing the grieving process. And and there could be positive or negative things to that. But I think for the most part, it's like a positive thing that astrologers do that's that's okay and is worth exploring and understanding better like how they do that what was that process like for you or what happened with you this year yeah so my father died earlier this year around i think it was march 22nd and i agree that yeah sometimes as astrologers we tend to compartmentalize things or intellectualize things um because there's you know often a correlation with like being a rather intellectual person if you're if you are really geeking out on astrology, you know, not universally so, but yeah, you might be a person who who thinks a lot and reflects a lot. So it is natural to want to find, um, I guess, <laughs> to get some kind of hashtag astrologer good moment out of any personally significant event. So yeah, I certainly found myself feeling like, oh, wow, my, you know, my own father just died. That's such a personally significant event in the life of this native. Um, so what is, you know, what's happening in my chart that might indicate that? What's, what is, um, you know, my life from here on out? This is an important turning point for me. Um, and as I, well, studying like... I mean, was it important? How did it impact you? Like, yeah, speak like you would speak to that. I mean, do you yeah. have a close relationship? How old was he? I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I'm like trying to think of the math. He was probably 67 at the time, and um, so we, yeah, we've had kind of a tumultuous relationship. Like there are a lot of ways in which I um, would identify with him or have like some types of loving bonds as a child, but um, he was a pretty uh, emotionally abusive, um, self-involved person. And there's a, a long history of he and my mother really like sort of splitting up, getting back together, doing that over and over again in my childhood that, um, led to, you know, quite a disruptive, um, sort of like insecure foundation in that way. Okay. So yeah. that's an important point. Cause I, that actually comes up and has come up recently for me with a few friends, which is just, there's a different, um, relation there's a different thing based on the nature of the relationship and and when looking at the charts you, you know you can't take it for granted what the nature of the relationship was um but sometimes that context adds context about how the person might experience that death or not exactly um, 
you know, sometimes it's experiences more negative if they were very close, but if a person wasn't super close, it might not be experienced as negatively necessarily, Mm -hmm. even if it still shows up in the chart. Yeah, yeah. So at the time that he died, we had been estranged um, for about 15 months. Like I had sort of finally made the conscious choice to cut off communication with him. And so there was definitely an experience of uh, you know, tragic loss in terms of just, you know, it would have been nice to have maybe attempted to have another conversation. Um, but it, um, he had even, you know, I'd blocked him in many ways, but he had attempted like another method of reaching out just like two weeks before he passed. And how did he pass away? Um, we think it was a stroke. Okay. So, yeah. So sort of a, um, you know, maybe like lifestyle related or just generally, yeah, something that can happen at that age. Mm-hmm. So sudden, unexpected. Um, yeah, but then at, when that happens at the same time that you're not in contact with someone. Um, and as a, yeah, just, uh, I guess the way I s- see him in my chart is, is a, like the son is often associated with the father, for instance. and. Mm. I have the son placed in the, you know, in the whole sign fourth house, so it even doubly so seems to you know, it would be a clear indicator of the father in a way. So you have um, Capricorn, Capricorn rising, and you have the sun in Aries in the fourth house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that was one of the things when you told me it was earlier this year that I immediately thought of was we had our first eclipse in Aries earlier this year in like April, mm-hmm. I think. So it would have been right after that, basically right after your father died, there was a lunar eclipse in your fourth house of, of parents and father. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, um, when I think of like the process of um, unpacking, you know, for me, unpacking the, the nature of that relationship or trying to understand so many ways in which a, you know, a, a figure who is sort of controlling or abusive or centers a lot of attention around themselves and a family, how once they're gone, you, what does the rest of the family do or how do they process that death? So in that way, um, I think the, yeah, the eclipses are certainly signifying that to me, understanding maybe the, my current interpretation of my, you know, my family history or my ancestral lineage when it comes to such things as you know, like he struggled with alcoholism and other substances. So sort of even looking at what does that look like as a legacy in a family um, is one of the topics. That's an interesting point. Oh, that's actually a good point. It's like one of the things from an intellectual standpoint is when a person does pass away. And I think this is especially true for celebrities. And it's one of the reasons why astrologers sometimes end up focusing on it in the immediate aftermath. But it's like you know at that point what that a person's story is done then like mm-hmm. that you've reached the end of the like book of the person's life that it's you're no longer you know because that's one of the dangers uh, in astrology of using celebrity examples or using somebody as an example if they're still alive is like their book isn't finished yet and they're still writing it and there's still maybe many more chapters that you haven't gotten to which can sometimes be a little bit annoying in terms of like doing a consultation especially with somebody that's very young and seeing certain indicators in their birth chart and saying what it means 
they can sometimes have a reaction of like that doesn't fit and and one of the issues can become that it just hasn't happened yet but mm -hmm. it, it will later in their life especially as they get older um but when a person passes away it's like the book of their life is finished being written and so therefore you can look at their chart and the totality of their life um, to understand their story because of that sense of like finality at that point. Mm -hmm. And that's a, definitely the feeling that I, or the thought process I was having at that time was just, that felt very profound to me that, that the book of his life is over, but the book of my life is ongoing. And so, um, and in this way, because of the estrangement, I was, you know, I was angry about that. I was like, oh, well, he just gets to opt out of ever, uh, you know, you know, in, in so much as, his death is a reflection of his life. Um, he will always be known as having never resolved the the, the difficulties, you know, the um, estrangement from his children and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's like, what a tragic ending in this way. And um, meanwhile, you know, those of us who are still alive will have, you know, his whatever level or whatever span of time our lives intersected with his, um, it will be just a, yeah, another piece of our own journeys that we'll have to unpack and process and you will be affected by that that legacy of having interacted with him right yeah um and then so it's like the eclipses start in your fourth house so which is interesting in and of itself and then um even if you're capricorn rising then that means this venus retrograde in leo this summer would have been in your eighth house mm -hmm. so in the like immediate sort of aftermath of him passing away. And as you're like processing that, some of those those transits are taking place through your eighth house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's true. And um, there's, I mean, a few other things, like it wasn't just the death of my father, but I've also suffered from a number of miscarriages in the past like two years. Mm -hmm. And so those have ended up correlating kind of eerily with um, some events related to my father as well. So, and I'm a moon in the eighth house, um, native so there's some way in which just like family experiences and experiences related to maybe like childbirth as well have been similarly uh, touched by these these eighth house experiences hmm. yeah that's actually really interesting i mean you know we're just getting out of the taurus scorpio eclipse series we just had our last one and the fourth so that would have been bouncing back and forth between your fifth and your 11th exactly um but that's a really big area where sometimes people do suffer loss is in um pregnancy or in um even the loss of a, of a child sometimes being indicated by like fifth house indications is, is a major way that this the topic of death comes up in astrology sometimes in a very personal way. Yeah. And it makes me think as well of, um, I guess, like to what extent can the 12th house also speak to death because of kind of the indications of loss or of suffering. And I was observing that on the one hand, um, yeah, I've got like a, I've got a really stacked fifth house. <laughs> like it's Taurus, Venus is in domicile, Jupiter is co-present. Um, so one might think that it's an especially like a, a, you know, something that on the surface would show uh, like an abundance of children, for instance. So, but Jupiter is also the Lord of my 12th house. So seeing sort of like a, um, some indicator there where the, you know, the planet that rules the topic of loss and grief um, is present in the fifth. And mm. 
So seeing seeing that come manifest in a way is interesting because Jupiter on its own, you know, obviously doesn't represent that. Uh, but then being a 12th house Lord seemed to correlate with some experiences relevant to that. Right, for sure. And that if it's a night chart, that Jupiter's not able to be as benefic as he would like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to think, do you want to show your chart or I sure. don't? I guess we did on the Capricorn episode, didn't we? Yeah, okay. yeah, I'm happy to if it feels relevant. I was going to reference as well, just when we were talking about the sun in the fourth house, the my son is overcome by squares from, you know, sign-based squares from both malefics, as well as some, you know, like a pretty close square from Neptune. So there are some indicators there as well, I think, that speak to um, my experience of my father, as well as how... Um, just sort of like my life choices as a Capricorn native seem to be in reaction to um, what I perceived as his life choices. What's your birth date? Uh, it's 28th of March, 1988. What time? 2.13 a.m. Where? San Diego. 25 Capricorn rising? Yeah. So we're looking at a chart with 25 degrees of Capricorn rising and... There's four planets in Capricorn, which are in the fourth whole sign house. The first. Or sorry, yeah, first whole sign house. Thanks. So Uranus at one Capricorn, Saturn at two Capricorn, Neptune at 10, and Mars at 23. Um, Pluto's conjunct the degree of the midheaven, which is in the 11th whole sign house, and the midheaven's at 14 Scorpio, and Pluto's at 12. Um, the moon is at 13 Leo in the eighth house. We have... Um, the IC is in Taurus in the fifth whole sign house at 14 degrees. And then Jupiter is also in the fifth at four Taurus. And Venus is at um, 23 Taurus in the fifth. Uh, the sun is at seven degrees of Aries in the fourth whole sign house. And Mercury is conjunct the north node in Pisces in the third whole sign house with Mercury at 17 degrees of Pisces and the north node at 23 Pisces. Um so, wait a minute. Are you are you an eclipse person? Mm, I think I was born yeah after the um, eclipse in the, maybe a solar eclipse in Pisces. Yeah, there was a, a solar eclipse in Pisces on March seventeenth. So that was about you know it's it's getting in the range of of getting out, but it might still be in the range of close enough. Um, with you were born on March twenty eighth, so about like 10 days late, 10 days after one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What's the orb you've been using for that? We've been using like the tight, tightest orb is like a week, but we did notice some that were going um, a bit outside of that because that was basically like the previous lunation or the prenatal lunation um, right before you were born. So that may give you eclipse signatures just in terms of making eclipses more important um, mm-hmm. in your life. Mm-hmm. That's interesting to consider. Yeah, um, we talked about that a little bit yesterday in eclipses because you you mentioned that um, you were in a seventh house perfection year and you had an eclipse happen in Cancer in your seventh house and you ended a major relationship, but then you also started a relationship with the person who had become your your marriage partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, the interesting overlap, I guess, as well with them. Um... The Lord of the Seventh being in the Eighth House, I kind of see as this fact that my marriage partner is my business partner. 
nice. the the way in which our you know our romantic relationship is um you know is simultaneously almost developed as our business relationship um seems to be a um a relatively rare i guess or a or very specific signification of that of the lord of the seventh and the eighth right um yeah, so that's that's interesting though. Just going back to the like um, the fourth house in that eclipse that happened afterwards, and then you said you'd been dealing with some miscarriages over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. In that, you know, it's been starting like literally two years ago now in November of twenty twenty one is when we had our first eclipse, in, lunar eclipse in Taurus, which would have been in your fifth house. Mm-hmm. And that was a month after my first miscarriage. It would have been in October, 2021. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So you were dealing with the the after, immediate aftermath of that. And then there was an eclipse in your fifth house of children. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, one of the things we learned with eclipses last month is just that like the, especially with solar eclipses, it's like, you know, daytime and the sun is shining and it's like the normal cycles of nature and life and vitality. And then all of a sudden the moon moves in front of it and it's almost like the snuffing out of like life at at that point in the middle of the day. And it's sort of an interruption in that that natural cycle. And I think that's why sometimes eclipses are associated with negative things because of the that um, perception or that experience of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems like, yeah, that eclipses can sometimes be associated with that depending on what house they're falling. And also just because it's indicating like a major turning point or nexus point in time where you're experiencing something very deep related to the topic of that house. Yeah. And interesting to consider too, I guess, whether an eclipse, sort of what we were talking about yesterday, whether it feels like it's the right time for a thing to end, you know, whether an eclipse happens to line up with you know, an internal feeling of like, yeah, I'm done with that thing. And now, or whether it ends up being a, you know, a total surprise, like something, a life is snuffed out, but it was unexpected. Right. Yeah. That's a good point. Cause on the one hand, sometimes they represent like the ending of a major chapter and it's like almost like the natural life cycle of something with like 10th house eclipse and it's like you end a career or something or you had a 7th house eclipse and like a a relationship ended it had like run its course in some way Um, but then other times eclipses do have this chaotic quality where things happen somewhat unexpectedly and um, somewhat almost dramatically yeah and sometimes they can be um, yeah for the good I think I remember earlier that year in 2018 um, when I'm talking about the the eclipse seasons of that year, um, there, the you know Aquarius Leo eclipses were still in effect, and for me that's the second and eighth house, and I had an experience I think very close to uh, one of those eclipses, either the Aquarius solar eclipse or the Leo um, lunar eclipse uh, in that beginning of the year, where I started a job that uh, just increased, uh, like it was a, a level of um, income that was like dramatically higher than what I had experienced previously to that. Mm-hmm. And it sort of came out of the blue. It was like someone found me on LinkedIn and um, just like solicited me as a person to um, take on this work. Mm-hmm. So that felt that was the beginning of kind of like a new era in terms of my relationship with with finances or like personal assets. Um, like prior to that, just you know, as 
you know, as any Capricorn rising would be, like there's a strong awareness of and relationship to finances, but nothing that felt like it was a very like secure foundation of finances. And so I found that that eclipse correlated with a just like a dramatic change in my relationship to yeah to money. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a big thing when eclipses or things are hitting in the second and the eighth houses, mm -hmm. hitting that axis. Mm -hmm. um, all right, I'm trying to think of other things. So obviously, one of the things we've seen here is there were like indicators in your chart of you know the death of your father and that some of your processing of it was being indicated by like the transits that were hitting your chart in the aftermath of that as well as other the the miscarriages as well and and the way that that affected you so it's like one of the things we're seeing then is just that death sometimes shows up in the way that the people that it affects how it's um how they're processing it and how they're dealing with it in the aftermath of that mm -hmm. yeah definitely and i guess um just as a there's another potential topic, which is kind of tangential, is when people work in death, like when people are, say, like working in hospice care or death doulas or mortuary services, um, I think that's an interesting topic to explore as well. Oh, yeah. When people have like career significators, I had one person once, I think that had like the ruler of the 10th house of career in the, ninth, in the eighth house of death, and they worked in like a mortuary. Yeah, it seems to be a strong correlation. I mean, there's sometimes we see like the eighth house um, career significators indicating like working with, you know, depth psychology, I guess, because we see also the eighth house having significations of, of fear and anxiety. Um, but it's just, it's always funny to me, I guess, when unpacking someone's eighth house with them where they might be anxious about this strong correlation with death in their chart, but then you, you can ask them and they'll be like, oh yeah, I was kind of considering training to become a death doula or, um, you know, or, or they've already been working in say hospice care and it's personally fulfilling and significant to them. So again, kind of distinguishing when something is indicating the health of the native themselves versus indicating them either working in death or experiencing other people's deaths, et cetera. Right. Yeah, it's like the archetype is manifesting, but sometimes the person is becoming almost the agent of it rather than it being something that's happening to them. Although, you know, even sometimes in those instances, it's both because it can be a person that has a profound experience with a death and then decides that they want to go into that area to help other people, sort of, which is a, is a common theme. Yeah, true. And that's again, just thinking about how much, at least in my opinion, are like sh maybe shifting. Our cultural awareness of and acceptance of death would be, um, it would be beneficial for a just like collective mental health because it's just so often that people experience a loss and then find that they're suddenly in this new category of person. Um, like having a, a close personal loss um, can, yeah, you can feel like you yourself are changed as a person and that you there aren't it's not easy always to find resources for support at those times and other people in your life who haven't experienced a close personal loss um, might not know how to relate and so yeah just like how much that experience can change a person again is, is pretty interesting yeah for sure um, people can feel 
uh, sort of stigmatism surrounding it because they've gone through this intense transformative experience uh, that only they can relate to. And then sometimes it can make it harder to relate to other people or to go back to normal life. People have this experience of it being very stark that they're supposed to experience something like that and then just go back to the way things were or, or seeing that we're, that life is like going on, going on for everyone around them, but they're still um, very much stuck in like the grieving process and the process of, of coping with that. Mm -hmm. um, that can definitely be really difficult and, and reason why sometimes there can be other like longer term transits that are still happening for a while in a person's life because it's taking them a while to deal with the and process what happened. Mm-hmm. It's making me think as well, again, about like the malefic ruled signs. And if people have a, a some kind of strong, um, I guess, association with either like a chart ruler in a malefic sign or a malefic sign rising, you know, being like Capricorn, Aquarius, Aries and Scorpio. Um, I think of those people as, uh, you know, maybe not universally so, but there can be in the life of that native, um, the topics of... Um, yeah, I guess, the, you know, the malefic topics, those that are antithetical to life are present in their life and are maybe unavoidable or to some extent a person ruled by malefics is carrying that um, that heaviness with them by way of personal experience and um, our, because our society, you know, doesn't necessarily have a place for that. It can you can see it leading to some of the significations that people um, with those chart signi signifiers experience. Uh, there's sort of like a, you know, like Saturn and Mars are both archetypes that exist sort of like at the fringes of society or sort of like outcasts from society. They're um, almost that way in which people start to feel isolated or start to feel like they're not, you know, they can't quite rejoin society um i think it's it's interesting to analyze when when a person has these like a collection of planets say in, in scorpio or in capricorn or in aquarius and how much they relate to that type of experience of being seen as other or of feeling isolated because of their um, experiences with maybe loss or tragedy sure yeah i mean i want to avoid generalizing too much with zodiac signs in particular but I would say that in originally making the case for um, ancient astrology and making a case for recovering the distinction between like benefics and malefics, um, especially like 10 years ago where that was a, a case that had to be made because modern astrologers had explicitly gone out of their way to reject that concept on conceptual a conceptual basis because they would point and say, you know, sometimes the benefic, the malefics can coincide with constructive things, mm -hmm. um, which is true. But um, one of the arguments for just the existence of benefic and malefic is the ability to see the areas of a per of a person's life where sometimes they do struggle or do experience extreme hardship or loss, and being able to account for that and speak to that. And part of the premise is that in order for there to be good things 
if, if there's a category of things that indicates like positive things in a person's life, there has to be a category of things that indicates the opposite, which is like negative things or challenges or, or loss. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes that does come down to um, positive or negative indicators in the chart that indicate the areas where we'll um, suffer or experience some of our most negative experiences that are subjectively things that we are not preferable, let's say, Mm -hmm. that we would prefer not to experience or that we experience as um, extreme levels of like suffering or loss or or grief. Um, Yeah. And sometimes those placements in the chart can, can indicate that for sure. Like where we'll experience some of those things. Cause for each person it's different. Like for some people, just thinking about the topic of death in particular, it's like I've seen somebody who had difficult placements in the seventh house and they lost a marriage partner um, who died prematurely just a few years into their marriage. Um, I've seen somebody that had it related to children. It was the loss, premature loss of a young child um, and the grief surrounding that. I've seen others that had it related to parental significators and they lost a parent when they were very young. Um, I've seen others, even like celebrity ones, like um, Dave Grohl, for example, has like Mars in the eleventh house in what I think is actually a, a day chart. He's right. He's right on the border. But and he lost. You know, when Kurt Cobain died, it's like for most people around the world, they were like there was this period of like grief and shock and stuff that this famous musician who everybody had listened to. Kurt Cobain's music through Nirvana and stuff. And, and that was the experience of that and seeing somebody's life cut tragically short um, by suicide. Uh, but for Dave Grohl, it was like he lost a friend and that his immediate experience was losing a friend um, to, to that. Um, and then later, just a few years later, he experienced that again with the loss of Taylor Hawkins, like his drummer for like the past 20, almost 30 years. So sometimes people experience loss through friendship, and that can be one of the most extreme sort of manifestations of difficult placements in that house. Um, the The experience can be so different to different people, but still very personally impactful, and it can still change their life in very notable ways. Mm-hmm. That's a great point too about like not generalizing about um, signs in particular, and of also how the there must exist malefics or things that signify death because there are things that signify life like just i guess the balanced nature of the system where we do need to be able to identify some things as signifying the you know the unfortunate experiences in life yeah i mean if if we can if there's something in the chart that indicates like a person winning a lot the lottery and having like sudden success or good fortune then there has to be something that indicates the opposite of like somebody that gambles, you know, that all of their money and loses everything, mm-hmm. um, or is tremendously unfortunate with things. Like, and that's one of the things that's one of the I think I said it's part of the subtitle of my book is Hellenistic Astrology, the study of fate and fortune, because I believe that some group of people or that some people around the first century BCE that they created a new system of astrology and developed a system that was able to study fate um, and create an objective framework for studying fate 
through the alignment of the planets and through natal astrology in particular, but it also wrapped in concepts of fortune and like good fortune and bad fortune, which normally we experience as a random and sort of like chaotic force in nature, this idea of fortune being capricious. But um, you know, in the ancient world and especially to the Stoics, fortune was something that was um, subsumed under fate so that even the random capricious acts of good fortune or bad fortune were something that was part of a person's fate and were part of a broader ne uh, network or framework of fate. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the things that ast ancient astrologers then would attempt to do was identify the areas of good fortune and bad fortune as general categories of like the areas where a person will tend to have um, some of their greatest struggles, or on the other hand, some of their most most positive events where things come easily to them. Yeah, and like a person wants to know, you know, generally all of that information I mean, to varying degrees depending on what the person's personality is like. But generally, most people are going to want to know um, both when when is you know when are their when are they likely to be in the right place at the right time? When are they likely to be in the wrong place at the wrong time? And yeah, to what extent will there, like it makes me think of zodiacal releasing when we'd study maybe the intersection of fortune and um, spirit, um, where to what degree can a person's spirit or their their will um, harmonize with their their fortune or their you, their circumstances that are beyond their control? And there's sort of that back and forth um, looking at how much will do we have like how much can we work with or how much can we overcome our fortune like it says you're saying how fortune gets subsumed by fate in a certain way yeah well and that brings up an interesting point which is like in the ancient world hellenistic astrology was developed and the system was developed because they were largely most of the ancient world was in more of a stoic context of that your future is predetermined and that you use astrology or divination to find out your future so that you know the things that you have to accept because they believed that um, it was more psychologically it would be less it would be more psychologically helpful to be able to accept things in the future as though they were in the present to prepare yourself so that you're not thrown off in extremes um, internally in terms of um, a, a, the ability to adopt a more internal sense of equilibrium and tranquility. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like that was the viewpoint in the ancient world of like why you would want to do something like astrology to know your future and, and to have some preparation for it. Um, but that definitely brings up some questions in like modern times of like is foreknowledge beneficial inherently um, and I think you know that's a tricky question because in some instances it might be whereas in other instances it might not be or there could be instances where maybe that could be harmful or knowledge that's not necessarily going to be helpful to the person or could throw them off in different ways mm -hmm. it depends a little bit on a person's temperament um, and, a, and a number of different factors. Yeah, it's true. I feel like I have that conversation often with people in discussing fate versus free will, where um, 
people maybe take for granted that their temperament is informing their um, their philosophy or their preference for that. Um, that they know that or that they don't realize that? I guess that they don't realize that, that yeah. if they have, say, a strong proclivity towards um, free will or towards like individual determinism by way of your your own choices or actions, as opposed to um, the, like, the philosophy of surrendering to your fate or, you know, taking your fate as graciously and um, effectively as you can, how like either side of that coin might feel more comforting or more logical to one person or another, um, depending on yeah, their overall temperament or their relationship with the archetypes that indicate such things. So I would consider myself a person who would, you know, if I could know um, the length of my life or, you know, certain events into the future, I would be, you know, as a super Capricornian person, I would be very happy to have that information so I could prepare myself accordingly or so I could know which efforts are the best use of my time and which ones are a waste of time. But, um, you know, just again, that's kind of a generalization of Capricorn, but other people are like, you know, absolutely not. I don't want to know, like, I want to feel, or I either I believe strongly that I am affecting my own destiny, or even if I'm not, I don't want to know what's coming. I like that would give me anxiety. Yeah. Well, and, and also the issue of the anxiety and, and self-fulfilling prophecy scenarios is also um, something that's important, is is a potential pitfall and not always because most astrologers experience that the astrology is working sometimes in our lives, even sometimes despite our best efforts. So mm -hmm. it's not really a matter of self-fulfilling prophecy most of the time because sometimes it's just external circumstances that are happening to us. Um, but that brings up, you know, one of the ethical arguments that happens sometimes in modern times is like, you know, most people, I think most astrologers are in agreement that as a matter of like ethics as a consulting astrologer, that it's usually seen as like not ethical to predict somebody's death or try to make a statement like that. And I think that's um, true and, and probably a good place that we're at at this point. Um, but it's definitely one of the differences of modern um, versus like ancient astrology, where it was like in some of the texts, like Ptolemy, some of their rationale is like, this is the first thing that we should try to figure out because their very practical rationale was that it doesn't make sense to predict, you know, things for a person in the future if they're not going to live to see those things. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that, that was like part of their almost like ra philosophical rationale for trying to figure out the length of life first. So that you have a context for like, should I be doing calculations for this person's like time lord periods for like fifty years from now, or is that not going to be necessary for for some reason? Yeah, and I think in this day and age, it would be more. It would have to be like a consent based process, whether or not the native is interested in that type of information. If it could be ascertained, some kind of uh, length of life or moment of death. Is that something that a person is interested in knowing or not interested in knowing? Yeah, I mean, it's also it's very abstract because on the one hand, I think the vast majority of astrologers, I would not, I don't think they can predict death reliably enough, and I would mm -hmm. not put my faith in the vast majority of astrologers to be able to do that mm -hmm. um, from a technical standpoint with, um, 
any degree of not any degree of certainty, but with enough certainty to take that prediction as like a foregone conclusion. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's one of the reasons why I think from an ethical standpoint, I agree with some of those modern and contemporary prohibitions against predicting death. Um, I do think there's probably certain limited circumstances, though, that I've heard of that might be um, where it might be permissible if somebody is dealing with like end of life matters and they're trying to make arrangements for somebody who where the sort of certainty of death is already there and they're in um, like hospice or something like that or they're dealing with the very end of a long struggle with with a illness or something like that and they're trying to I've heard about instances where somebody's like trying to make arrangements either for themselves or, or or what have you in those circumstances and in which they're not trying to do get a specific prediction for the exact end of their life for like idle purposes because they're bored or something like that but just that they're trying to get in additional information that may be helpful as they're trying to um um get their affairs in order or something like that mm. i mean even with that you'd have to be extremely careful and it would still be a very provisional type of thing but it, um, so that there's still ethical issues about what should be said or not said as well as the effectiveness of the individual astrologer at doing something like that because I don't think most astrologers even specialize in that enough to be able to do it um, as authoritatively as might be ideally called for but there's certain like limited circumstances where you can kind of understand why somebody might want to look into that more in certain circumstances. Mm -hmm. That's a great point that just generally speaking, there would be unadvisable to consult the most astrologers on the topic of predicting death because of how complex it is or because of how maybe little it's actually been studied. Yeah. I mean, you know, frankly, it's part of a broader issue in our field, which is just that there's astrologers, like most astrologers learn astrology and they're an astrologer first and then secondarily may have one or two other like specialty topics that they have some familiarity with. But like for most things in astrology, in order to do it well and in order to ast apply astrology well to a specific subfield, you need to become an expert not just in the astrology but also in the subject that you're trying to predict. Mm -hmm. So this is true for like financial astrology. You can't just like learn astrology and then immediately apply it to the stock market or something and being an amazing success in financial astrologer. You actually have to be good in finance at the same time, like an expert in the specific area of investing that you're going to try to invest in. And then you combine it with astrology at a very high level at the same time. But that takes years and years of practice and learning both the astrology side and the financial side to do that really well. Mm -hmm. And one of the issues that we have in our field is for many astrologers, they'll learn a little bit about the astrology and then try to apply it to a, a subdiscipline, but they both won't have gone far enough into the astrological studies and won't have gone far enough into the individual subsection to truly do and combine those two things well in the best and most effective way. Mm -hmm. um, and it's something I, 
yeah, I'm constantly encouraging people if they want to really specialize in some application of astrology that you've got to really dig in deep in both of those and try to learn them as deeply as you can in order to do that effectively because otherwise it can lead to like a certain amount of like sloppiness or inaccuracy that um, could have been avoided with just deeper study. That makes sense. And I think that a lot of beginning astrologers feel that pressure to be able to speak to anything in the chart and yeah, not being afraid to admit when a certain topic is out of your ex your area of expertise or to even like market your services as specifically you can consult on these types of life topics because they're the ones that you study or are most familiar with. Um, it would be interesting, I guess, to see maybe if there were more of a trend towards that rather than giving like a general overall life advice or consulting on anything under the sun if astrologers were to, I guess sort of what I was referring to yesterday, um, just to specialize in something that they, yeah, they do feel confident in with their, with their knowledge base. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I should also back up and say it's like, it's okay. Astrologers have to be like generalists to some extent because mm -hmm. astrology is so broad. And um, especially as a consulting astrologer, you see so many people from so many different walks of life um, that you end up having to develop all these different skills. Or just as an astrologer, you have to develop lots of different understandings of different fields, at least at some basic level of like, you got to learn about the history and learn about like the history of astrology. Um, if you're a consulting astrologer, sometimes you need to learn some like counseling techniques or things like that. Um, if you want to speak to psychology, you need to like learn psychology. If you want to learn, if you want to apply astrology and talk about like the stock market or like Bitcoin or whatever, then you've got to like learn about that. Um, there's lots of different things you can apply to astrology, and all of us develop a pretty broad range of knowledge as much as we can. I guess just there's certain topics that if you want to do it well, you really have to dig in deep. And when it comes to really serious things, I think it's important to not um, just to be careful about how you're approaching it and that you're not approaching it in a lax sort of manner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ethic, ethical considerations, like always, like keeping those in mind. Um, yeah, for sure. For yeah. sure. Because also that was something we talked about in the recent forecast, just in terms of how you when you're acting as an astrologer and when you're talking to other people, you're kind of like representing all of us in some ways. Mm -hmm. So it's like, don't make us look bad by doing something dumb that's like unethical or improper or that your colleagues would view that way. Um, because even if you think that's okay yourself, like if you're doing something that's, that's unethical, um, that sort of reflects badly on all of us. And I think this is one of those areas where you can get into some tricky stuff if you're not approaching it with a certain amount of of care and like and respect and everything. Totally, it's a great point that even though we are seeing so many more people getting into astrology or studying it more deeply these days, you're still very likely as an astrologer to be you know the only person in the room, uh, you know, and among a group of people who is as knowledgeable as you are in astrology. You're quite often the expert in the room in the subject. So yeah, you might end up representing to the lay person uh, the, in the entire field. Um, they might, you might be the only person they ever interact with who um, is a, you know, an actively studying or practicing astrologer. So there is a, a responsibility to the community. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. And I think that'll become more and more important as we, you know, we, we're 
we've been in this period of like a uh, great popularity and sudden like resurgence of astrology over the past five years or so. And you know, if we head into a, as we head into a period where there might be more challenges to astrology or more blowback for astrology, just making sure astrologers are doing a good job and trying to act with with integrity and ethics is definitely important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So. What are some other topics in this broad sort of topic that we've decided to like have an impromptu conversation about of the astrology of death that we haven't touched on at this point? Mm, I mean, I was curious, I guess just uh, we could dive more into the eighth house in terms of looking at like transits of the ruler of the eighth house as indicating times when it becomes more relevant. Um, but we might not want to go back there. Um yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know that I would look at transits of the ruler of the eighth house, but I mm -hmm. know. I mean, certainly one of the things we've come up on is is eclipses. Mm -hmm. Like that's been a major recurring thing for us. Um, that's definitely been very personal for me. Um, yeah, I remember there was eclipses in my mom's chart in her fifth house when she lost her daughter, which was my sister in like a car accident. Mm. Um, and what else? Um, so eclipses are a major thing. There can be like indicators in a person's chart, let's see, of difficulty in certain areas that's sort of built in that can indicate circumstances that they grew up in and that can relate to maybe family members that weren't there sort of uh, growing up at a certain point. Mm -hmm. um, I noticed in my own uh, solar return chart, I guess, for the year in which my father died that I saw um, like particularly negative significators, um, like the Lord of the IC was besieged by malefics in that solar return chart. Okay. Yeah. So just, I guess, as another possible indicator of um, unfortunate events related to the, the ruler of a house topic that is referencing someone else in the chart. Yeah, in the solar return chart possibly being relevant to that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I know, I guess in the eclipses episode, we talked about like Einstein when he had his like miracle year, um, his solar return was very close to an eclipse. And so there's probably like circumstances where an eclipse in a solar return chart could also sometimes maybe indicate things coming up in a challenging or difficult sense as well. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering if you have any more information about, I guess, like the cultural context, like we were mentioning the Stoic philosophy of um, ancient times, but in terms of like the relationship to death as being a part of life or as being something that was, um, you know, just like how it might differ from today. Um, no, I want to back up for a minute because there's one other personal one that I had. Mm, and yeah. I've, I've shared this once in one of the first Eclipses episode I did with Lisa where we shared charts from the Mercury Cafe of people having eclipses. Um, and I shared it at the end of it, but it was one that was actually personally relevant for me, which is um, in the aftermath of when my sister passed away. She was, tw she was 20 and I was only 23. Actually, mm -hmm. I, was, yeah, I was about 23. Um, I noticed that she, I was trying to piece together what happened and understand things and, and using the astrology in my grie grieving process was very much part of that. And one of the things that I noticed that 
in the month before she died, um, an eclipse happened and it was in her, in my eighth house and her eighth house and my mother's fifth house. So it was like indicating children for my mother and sort of like death or loss in me and my sister's charts. But that, that same eclipse, there was a lunar eclipse and a solar eclipse um, that one of the eclipses fell on, she ended up buying a new car basically or a used car the day of one of the eclipses that ended up being the car that she was in the car accident with and then um like a grocery store opened on the other eclipse two weeks later which ended up being the destination that she was like driving to that night like late at night when she got in a car accident wow. so that's one of the ways that like on the one hand as a personal example eclipses have always been relevant um and i think i ended up mentioning that in her eulogy which i can't find now um but it was also one of the ways i was trying to understand like the meaning and purpose and understand that my life would be changed at that point and how that would change um, my life trajectory which it certainly did because then i moved back home i moved back to colorado uh, to support my mom and um, I understood at the time how it would that it would change my life at that point, but I didn't necessarily understand where it would take me from that point. Um, but looking back in retrospect, it was certainly like an inflection point. Um, and for sure, looking at the astrology of the time was helpful for me in like coping with that process and seeing some of the things surrounding it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes sense. It ties back as well to that idea that um, a a thing, an event like an eclipse might be happening somewhere else in, in your vicinity, maybe like you're saying with the purchase of the car or the, the um, opening of the store where there are so many other factors in the environment that are also, uh, I guess, experiencing natal transits or are coming into inception that um, we run into we intersect, I guess our charts intersect with these other charts. Yeah, sometimes, um, especially with eclipses, um, things will happen that will be important, but it won't necessarily be within your field of view and you may not be aware of what's happened that's important until later. And that's something that happens with other transits as well. That's not limited to eclipses, but it does seem that that's more prevalent with eclipses. Mm -hmm. Something sometimes something's happening that's important that will affect you, um, but you may or may not be aware of it yet. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a major thing, and that's true of other transits as well. Um, yeah, but that also just gets into some of the broader things about um, fate and other things like that, and how um, our fate is sometimes part of like a interwoven sort of paths and strands that like intersect with other people and intersect with choices and other things like that that we make that all sometimes um, converge at certain points in our life um, and how as astrologers we're like studying some of those things and sometimes that can actually give us a great deal of almost like reassurance something we were talking about yesterday was the sort of um tension between what astrology represents versus the the modern contemporary especially like scientific or skeptical paradigm which just holds that 
the universe is like random and essentially meaningless versus I do think that astrology, um, because it works and because of what it shows or can show about our lives and our fate and the narrative of our stories and how it can show that large parts of that may be mapped out ahead of time, it does show um, a greater sense of like meaning and purpose underlying our lives than we might have reason to believe otherwise. And I think in doing so, then there's something that can be like inherently reassuring about astrology, especially when somebody's coping with grief or loss. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very powerful point. Just the because the, especially when coping with a, a loss, you can you can feel particularly subjected to this feeling of senselessness or meaninglessness or cruelty of of the universe. Mm -hmm. And to, I guess, again, the, like the comforting thought that there are, there's an inherent order or there is a structure there, there is some sense of like meaning that can be found. Um, it makes sense. And it's something that I think, again, humans naturally do. Like we can't help but try to find meaning in things. Like it's, it, I think it maybe takes active resistance to, um, to ignore the like the symbols or the patterns or things that you might observe in your life, even if you don't have the language of astrology, there's sort of a natural tendency to want to see things as um, as synchronous or or of having some kind of larger meaning than just our you know our subjective experiences within our own minds. Yeah, well, and I think that's why sometimes. You know, when somebody's dealing with loss or grief of a loved one, um, that religion, people can turn to religion or religion can be very reassuring in those times because it can provide a little bit of that framework of telling you that there's some sort of like meaning or purpose. But I think for astrologers, this might be, this is one of the ways in which um, astrology doesn't replace that completely, but it can do something that serves a similar purpose or or at least in showing you underlying themes of meaning and purpose underlying both your life as well as others um, that that can be kind of reassuring and can help um, in different ways yeah especially if you're already an astrologer and you're already suited to that like i don't know if I don't know that that necessarily always comes off well if you're like a non-astrologer and somebody's trying to tell you something about astrology that may not actually land very well. Um, it's only as like a professional astrologer, somebody that's been studying it for a while and can understand what they're seeing and how that's sort of interesting or how that that provides an, a unique and maybe helpful viewpoint on things then I think it can be reassuring. So it's kind of like an in-crowd type of thing. Um, but at least within that framework, it can be useful for those people who astrology is one of the ways that they make sense or make meaning of their life. Yeah, it's a great point. You don't want to preach to anyone who doesn't have that already as a shared language or a shared um, paradigm for reality uh, because it won't, it won't land and it would be insensitive. But um, it is certainly like, as I was kind of, saying last night um oh, i'm in a like for my own experience i'm in a 12th house perfection now and it's 
it's a Sagittarius on the 12th, so it's ruled by Jupiter. And I was just joking about how, for me, the experience of the these, um, this like familiarity with loss and other types of 12th house topics are coming with this very, um, this like Jupiterian perspective where I'm feeling a, a renewed sense of connecting to my own personal philosophy or establishing my own belief system, like what I believe is uh, how to establish meaning and purpose in life or how to derive um, hope when in the face of, of um, the reality of tragic events. And so I'm just like, yeah, it's a, this is a very particularly heavy point in my life that um, stands out, but I've been really like, I'm, I'm inspired. I'm, ex, I'm excited in a certain way, just as an astrologer, I'd see so many things correlating with the types of experiences that I'm having. And I'm motivated to find a broader context to find this sort of holistic perspective or higher perspective that I think um, to me, Jupiter can um, signify and in my personal experience as a very Saturnian person, it's like it can be relieving to almost need to turn to faith in a way, to to be faced with so much of the heaviness of reality that like in some ways that's what you know, like you're saying, that's when faith often comes in for people, is that because reality is, you know, um poignantly um difficult and so yeah faith becomes something that is necessary in order to continue on through the difficulties yeah so and you you moved into that 12th house perfection year around the time your father passed away right yeah it was with that it was like within it was the next week like a week later yeah yeah i was actually the same actually almost the exact same thing i was 22 and then my sister passed away a week before my birthday, so then I moved into that 12th house perfection year and was dealing with that that grief and loss for most of that year in that 12th house year. But I also I have Mars there, which is one of my most difficult planets in a, in a day chart, mm -hmm. um, but I also have Jupiter there. And I sort of threw myself into writing my book on Hellenistic astrology at that time because one of the last conversations I had with her was I told her I was going to dedicate my book to her. Mm -hmm. So it gave me a sense of like, drive and like purpose to like see that promise through to completion, um, which still ended up taking a number of years past that point. Actually, it took 10 years. It was released and she passed away in 2007 and the book came out in 2017. Mm -hmm. um, but the foundation of it was really laid at that point. Um, yeah, so 12, which just brings up in its 12th house things, but also sometimes finding meaning and purpose in the 12th house and when you're in that um, period of um, suffering or mourning or loss that can sometimes be associated with the 12th house and sometimes what what you find there and and what you do during those times or that people that have those placements emphasize that those can be times where important things um, end up happening mm -hmm. yeah definitely and that's I mean so that's is that really touches me uh, that story about your sister and how you had promised to dedicate the book to her and how that became such a motivating uh, factor, I guess, in the in the writing or in the completion of it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely um, was, and uh, yeah, I mean, I at the time I didn't 
I was struggling a little bit with it and maybe intellectualized things too much sometimes when talking to other people or mentioning the eclipses thing um, in the eulogy and I, I might do that differently now if I was to do things in retrospect but um, definitely at the time in terms of understanding my personal story and the, like the nexus of things um, and how things worked out I understood um, the turning point that that was in my life and mm -hmm. and then wanted to make sure that I did some of the things that I needed to do at that point forward with with my life and the things that I wanted to accomplish as well mm -hmm. um yeah yeah I just want to say I felt similarly in terms of like the death or not similarly in a certain way but reacting to or responding to the death of my father is a is a turning point because I I spent so much of my um adolescence and young adulthood like trying to uh, help him like bailing him out of situations or trying to like change his life trajectory and so to find it meeting its like inevitable conclusion and finding that perhaps my efforts to a certain extent were in vain um, it's led to this uh, like yeah new philosophy in terms of how I extend my efforts or how I can kind of reel back my attempts to change other people or to influence other people's lives, which was very much like a driving force um, previously that I think has led to you burnout and frustration and things like that. So there's this like renewed possibility of um, yeah, like living life more for myself and seeing that um, it sounds like my voice is getting sentimental, but <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm saying? The, the inspiration, I guess, or like what you end up dedicating yourself to as a result of interpreting yeah, those experiences. Yeah. And, um, and hopefully and using it in a way that, that changes you and motivates you to, to do something and to make a, a difference. And so that something positive comes out of it, even though it's an extremely negative experience. Um, that if it is able to to change you and motivate you to do things differently or to help other people, that that can you can at least make something come out of it that that might not have happened otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can redirect your energy, I guess, in a certain way, or even in the um, like as part of the grieving process, channeling that energy into some project or some new thought process. I think can be helpful. You know, to give yourself some. Yeah, some reason to continue on or you know, to you know, to find the meaning, even if it is a, a touch over intellectualizing, it's almost necessary to a certain extent. Yeah. And and obviously that's something also that's like for us as like more Saturnian type people, it's like of course that's part of how we're gonna react a little bit. And it's not mm -hmm. that everyone has to, because there's, you know, many different ways of grieving and different grieving processes and different things that are um, relevant and there's no like one way to do that mm -hmm. productively or successfully or what what have you. Um, That's true. Yeah, it's kind of like put an asterisk on this whole conversation. Right. <laughs> to Saturn ruled people, so yeah, you might interpret things differently. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, all of us can only ever speak to our own personal experiences, um, and we all try to sometimes step outside of that and speak objectively if we can. But um, yeah, we all go back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, 
all right. I'm trying to think of other things we haven't touched on because this is such a big topic. I've yeah. put it off from doing this topic for many years. I've been thinking about it a lot recently, though, because of all of the the death and destruction that we are seeing in the in the massacres and stuff uh, that are happening or have happened in the Middle East, and um, that you know when we started talking about this a little bit this morning. I thought it would be an appropriate topic because of just like the seriousness of everything going on right now. And it seems hard for me sometimes to like transition, you know, back to doing like normal sort of like pop culture discussions or something on the astrology podcast or other things like that. And while um, there could have been a version of this conversation that was like a little bit more uh, planned out, which is the usual sort of approach. Um, I wanted to do this here because it seemed like a good topic um, for us to do today. And I think we covered a lot of really good stuff that um, I would have wanted to cover on, a, on an episode like this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, this could be an introduction to the topic even. And perhaps, yeah, yeah a more structured conversation could happen at another time. For sure. For sure. Um, but it's the type of conversation that's nice to have in person like sitting here like this and just like talking as two astrologers so mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons why i thought i i wanted to do it today and i'm glad we did um mm -hmm. I'm another to... thought is occurring to me at the moment sure i think it's maybe as we were just talking about maybe our own processes of dealing with with loss and grief but um maybe it's just general um or other ways that people might find comfort in times of loss and um, and with like the general heaviness that's happening in the world right now, um, and the fact that Venus is in Libra at the moment, I was thinking like I've been talking a bit about leaning on Jupiter as as support to kind of deal with grief in terms of finding meaning and purpose. But I guess Venus as the other benefit can be an, an area for people to look to maybe in their charts or in their lives as a way to experience a bit of relief. You know, if they're going through a very heavy process, maybe being able to identify the types of things that bring them pleasure and joy and comfort and giving oneself permission to still experience some some pleasure, uh, some Venusian aspects, like even if you are in a overall um, tragic or heavy time, it can be helpful when you can to take a break to just have, you know, to just like be silly, be light, um, relate to Venus and, you know, come back to your your grief process or whatever it is that you're working through um when yeah when you need to yeah um i mean you can try for sure and it's good to try to make the effort to do those things um it's kind of hard because i know in the immediate aftermath of grief it's like uh nothing tastes or feels the same for a while and it sometimes mm -hmm. feels like some of those receptors are like almost like dead for a period of time True. um but certainly doing the things that you have to do in order to to get by and, and whatever that takes and sometimes leaning into the positive parts of your chart that do bring happiness or joy in order to try to to reestablish um the the reason to go on and to keep living is is really important mm -hmm. for sure mm -hmm. um yeah and um, and definitely also like one of the subtopics that we didn't get into, but could have is, is, you know, I hope sometimes there's people that feel like their life, that things are really bad and that they don't have a reason to go on living. And I, I hope 
you know, one of the things that's really important is to, is to encourage those people to find people to talk to and to reach out and find resources. Because I know one of the things that happens, especially when you're in the midst of really bad transits or a really bad experience in your life or you've suffered loss or, or grief, it can feel like it will never end. And, and sometimes people can want to just reach for whatever it takes to make that feeling stop. Um, but I think one of the things that's important when you're in the midst of, of bad transits, one of the ways that astrology can be useful is sometimes showing you that there's like an, an end point. And mm -hmm. even if you're in the midst of something that's really heavy, that it won't last forever, that you at least won't feel that way forever, that there's going to be other chapters of your life. Um, and that we all have different ups and downs, but that sometimes when you're in the depth of grief to just realize um, that there's still things to live for and there's still other positive things. Um, yeah, that, and that it's important to sort of like stick around and sometimes wait things out um, and do whatever it takes to do that so that you can get to some of those other times in your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, I mean, yeah, I guess so important to touch on that, that there are always like there are always other people who have experienced something or who can relate to that feeling of being alone or being super down or feeling like there's not any hope left. So no matter how isolated one might be feeling like you, there are, you're not truly alone. Like the kind of the breadth of human experience is so diverse that there's definitely other people who are, who can relate to what you're going through. And so that's never, yeah. Um, yeah. Don't quit just because you're feeling like you're um, in a particularly dark time. And that, as you're saying that all we understand that the nature of the, like the quality of time is that some times have that darker quality, but they will, yeah, they'll always pass. There'll be other times. Right. Yeah, for sure. That's something that can be really helpful with astrology, no matter what kind of negative or difficult experience you're having, um, is that's one of the things that can help is just using it sometimes to know when there will be other times and when other chapters of your life will will start. Mm -hmm. And that you're still like you're valuable, no matter how many um, unfortunate significators are in your chart. That doesn't mean that your life is invaluable or that there's not some purpose or meaning to it. Because um, we don't get to choose our charts. We just wake up one day and we're in this narrative that is constructed. Um, but every, you know, every single chart has a, a purpose or a meaning or something to learn from it. So just don't be dissuaded, I guess, as if, if you discover unfortunate significations in your chart, because they're just as valid and important as the fortunate ones in a certain way. Yeah. And I guess that goes back to a point that was made really early on, which is that it's a very frequent experience that we'll see difficult placements in a certain part of a person's chart that do sometimes can coincide with um, major loss or challenges or hardships. But then oftentimes those are also the same people that take those losses or hardships um, or tragedies and sort of transmute them into something very powerful for good in order to help other people mm -hmm. um, like you know, a doctor or something that goes to like a war zone to like help people out or 
um, like a grief counselor who, you know, in their own grief, um, you know, turns around and finds a way to help other people that are struggling with theirs, um, or, or, you know, a doctor or other people like that. There's just lots of different scenarios where you'll see um, people take, you know, challenging things and find a way to, to put them to, to good use in the future. Mm-hmm. I often think even just as simple as sharing your story can be important and helpful. Like, if you know, if your chart indicates that you're an expert in loss and grief, like you've had so many personal experiences related to unfortunate events, and you have become an expert in what it's like to live through a life that incorporates a lot of unfortunate events, your story is super valuable for other people to hear because there will be other people who can relate. And I mean, I just I, yeah, think about that. I guess once people are feeling overwhelmed by the number of unfortunate experiences that they might be encountering, is that even just them existing as a representative of that can give inspiration or can give like a sense of um, support or upliftment to other people who can, who can relate. Yeah. That just reminded me of like a really important point, which is that, that you see, cause you can only sort of like recognize it when you see like other people, but sometimes people that suffer extreme tragedies develop a deep sense of like empathy and understanding from that. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's one of the greatest things that can come from it is developing the empathy of having been there so that when you see other people in that position or you see other people suffering, having the ability to relate to what they're experiencing and to sometimes want to help in, in any way you can, I think that's that's an important aspect of things as well. I think so. And it's been on my mind a lot as the Saturn and Pisces generation begins to have their Saturn returns. Mm. Is what might that look like collectively for them as the sense of like the maybe the responsibility that comes along with with empathy or with having felt a lot of uh, relationship to you know, like global tragedy, et cetera. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Like empathy, themes of empathy, but also like themes of like like peace were were one of the ones. Because I, yeah, actually, you don't have to go into all that, but just, yeah. Um, yeah the, the, what is the role of empathy? And that empathy is really important. And sometimes, sometimes people, unfortunately, it's actually one of the shortcomings of humans. Oftentimes, is that there's many people, honestly, most people that you can't fully relate to something unless you've had that experience yourself. Yeah, It's like there are sometimes highly empathetic people that can relate to, to something without having that experience. But for most humans, we can't ever fully relate empathetically unless we've had a similar experience ourselves on some level, mm -hmm. uh, or at least it, it becomes a thing that for most humans helps them to put themselves in somebody else's position as having experienced that level of, uh, of suffering on some level. Um, you know, but the, you know, the, but there's some people for sure that can't or that don't experience that or don't um, hit that level of, of experience so that they maybe can't empathize as much. So it does create a special, I don't know, a special, I don't want to say not superpower, but a, a special gift sometimes, the gift of empathy that comes from um, extreme levels of hardship and loss can be very valuable and it can be something that not everybody has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that I think has so many implications too of like, what is life like if you're naturally a very sensitive or empathetic person or 
versus developing that later in life as a result of tragedies and um, how it can be difficult to navigate the world, you know, the world of work and productivity, et cetera, if you are a highly empathetic person, um, because perhaps, you know, if you can relate to so many different types of human uh, suffering or human emotions, that can be it can be difficult to focus on anything else. And I guess you get into some, like why certain people need to work in fields that are related to empathy or that utilize their empathy because it would be overwhelming to do work that doesn't utilize that. Hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's kind of a whole nother topic. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then I guess, I'll, you know, the reverse of what I said is true also that there's some people sometimes experience uh, extreme hardship and extreme hardship or loss and sometimes it can harden them in a yeah. way that maybe is not good or, or or in a way that maybe can make them um angry or or other things like that so i guess there is certainly a full range of different experiences if we're thinking about things astrologically and just mm -hmm. like how things show up in a person's chart and not assuming that it will always go one way but certainly definitely the empathy route is certainly one of the more sometimes constructive ways that that something good can come out of something bad mm -hmm. yeah great point that sometimes just the the hardening or the like the protecting kind of like shutting down one's emotions as a result or a reaction to tragedy is also um like just as normal or just as valid in a certain way yeah, sometimes it can be for sure. I mean, mm -hmm. like we said, I mean, everyone's different ways of coping with grief is different, but definitely yeah. sometimes anger or like feelings of like vengeance or, or retribution or other things like that can be ways that some people deal with certain forms of grief. And that's, that's a whole other topic in terms of um, how things go sometimes and just the wide range of different um, ways that people react to um loss and and grief mm -hmm. yeah for sure yeah um okay i'm trying to think if there's anything else it's such a vast topic i know there's stuff that we are forgetting or overlooking uh <laughs> yeah i just think feeling? they certainly are uh i'm starting to get hungry so okay. yeah we could we could put in a pen in it for the time being if we want um unless or we could give a moment of silence to see if anything else pops up that wants to be addressed yeah um yeah i mean i maybe that's good for now but there's definitely um i'm sure things that i'll want to return to in the future in future episodes certainly at some point i'll probably just talk about it as like a historical thing like the ancient length of life technique at some point mm -hmm. which i've always meant to do and i almost did a couple of years ago um but a interview fell through um, just to document that as a major piece of the history of astrology, because that had major historical implications at different time periods. Um, I guess I've been a little nervous about doing that episode because I also don't want like uh, astrologers like running around like predicting people's deaths and stuff. Yeah, you want to unleash that monster. <laughs> yeah, or just be careful, do it very carefully, and also be very clear about the limitations. Because I mean, I mean, frankly, like I only got the technique to work. 30 or 40 percent of the time and some of my ancient my much early experiments with it and that was one of the reasons i decided to focus on cultivating other techniques like zodiac releasing or perfections and transits because mm -hmm. those were the most effective sort of predictive techniques for me um whereas some of the the primary directions stuff associated with the 
core length of life technique was not as impressive. I mean, when it was impressive, it was kind of dead on, but so to, <laughs> spe so to speak. But when it was not, it was way off. And so I didn't focus on that for uh, a long time, but it would be something to at least be interesting to cover from a historical standpoint. Mm -hmm. Have you done an episode yet on Stoic philosophy as well? No, somebody else told me I should do that again re recently as well. I've been meaning to. I was much more... That was one of the things I also leaned into, actually, ironically, back during that time was stoicism um, when I lost my sister. And that I found that very helpful um, also from a philosophical or quasi-religious standpoint um, at the time. Um, but I know stoicism at the time was a much harder sell for people like back in the day. Ironically, over the past like, five years, it's uh, sort of independently stoicism is, has had a sort of resurgence in popularity and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so that might be a good discussion to have here at some point. It's just a matter of um, figuring out who to have that discussion with to do do a good job of it. Yeah, I think it, it helps, I guess, inform, again, just the, the philosophical underpinnings of ancient astrology and why things are as they are. It's helpful to know perhaps this yeah, this context under which these ideas are being developed. And it's not necessary perhaps to take on that worldview for yourself, but it's still informative for anybody who's interested in understanding and getting into that concept of like Amor Fati um, or love your fate is I think really, I guess, helpful to kind of have in your mind as you begin to study ancient astrology. Yeah. I mean, it's not just useful from a historical perspective, but there's something deeply, I think, appropriate and useful about it that we can apply in modern times because that's one of the real issues you run into when you start studying ancient astrology is you're dealing with a system that can speak to and can sometimes make very concrete predictions about a person's fate and about a person's future and can sometimes show you that some things in a person's life perhaps even most things are much more predetermined than we might think before we get into using this form of astrology or before we get into astrology, before we got into astrology at all. And then once you have that and you have suddenly a technical system for studying fate and that's indicating that some things are predetermined, what do you do with that and how do you cope with that? Like there's a tremendous psychological um, I don't know if burden is the right term, but there's a weight to that, a weightiness to that. And one of the things that for sure was helpful to me to deal with and to process some of that was stoicism because it was a philosophy for that assumed that things were predetermined, that your life was predetermined, and that sometimes the best thing that you can do, it says, is to embrace that and to embrace the things that you can't change, the things that you have to accept, and to be at peace with that, and that in doing so that you'll achieve not just a sort of inner tranquility, but also a form of freedom or, li or liberation by embracing your fate, ironically, yeah. even though that seems contradictory. But that that sometimes that is the greatest like freedom you can have is to to embrace it and to accept the things that you cannot change because they they would say that it's it's by trying to rebel against that or trying to reject the things that you can't even change that you create more internal discord for yourself mm -hmm. um, and sometimes especially 
in particular when dealing with like something that's irrevocable, like the loss of a loved one. Um, sometimes that is all you can do is is um, accept that or embrace that because it's not necessarily it's not something you can change. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't think most people. We're not always used to dealing with situations like that of something that's just like absolutely not negotiable or you can't change or that there's no going back from. But when confronted with an experience like that, um, it can change you and it can um, it, it it presents a really interesting um, issue of how to confront that and how are you going to cope with that internally. Um, yeah, and and that's where some of that comes in and becomes relevant. Yeah, I think like the liberation piece of it is very compelling because it's almost like you're liberating yourself from the misery of rumination. Um, you know, say in the loss of a loved one, you might be ruminating over what you could have done differently. Like, could you have prevented it? What you know, all these things that, but accepting the reality that it has happened and that it it is that way and it was always going to be that way gives you a sense of peace that you don't have to kind of torture yourself mentally over the details of maybe how the loss occurred or whether you might have had some um, influence that you wasted or influence that uh, you know, led to whether you're blaming yourself for anything. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's important because sometimes there's some circumstances where it's like what happened happened and it couldn't have happened any other way or that it happened the way that it was meant to in certain circumstances. And while there's broader discussions that we have to have still about like ethics and responsibility and cul culpability and mm -hmm. agency and all these other things, sometimes um, there can be something helpful about um, viewing things in that way when it was a circumstance that was outside of anyone's control and where it's something that it's not psychologically helpful to blame or beat yourself up for it or something like that mm -hmm. um, as well as to then look back at the person's life and understand once you know their full story like the beauty of their life story and to recognize it in its totality mm -hmm. um, you know even just with like the Matthew Perry example he was like born on an eclipse he passed away on an eclipse. And one of the things that was really striking is a year before he died, um, you know, he had he published an autobiography where he talked about his life and he published that in between two eclipses. Um, but in that doing so, like I thought there was something beautiful about that, that he got to tell his life story at the end of his life, like right before he passed away, essentially in the mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. And in some way the overall story or narrative of his life was brought to completion in some way, mm -hmm. even though he didn't maybe know that that was him wrapping up his life. Um, in some ways, there was some sense of um, completion to it. And there's something kind of beautiful about that in, in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. It's a really good point that even if a death feels premature, um, yeah, there can be a beauty in it and seeing the whole story in context, as you're saying. Right, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess to then look at you know, when that leads us to the, I guess, the celebration of life, the um, being able to, um, you know, at a certain point, maybe still holding the, there will always be the grief for the loss of someone, but at the same time, like not feeling guilty for wanting to 
I guess like remember them as as who they were when when they were alive uh, or what they did bring into other people's lives and sort of like hold those things simultaneously both the grief as well as the the joy and the appreciation of of what the what the life ended up being yeah exactly and to give you like a deep appreciation for what what they did and what some of the, like the good things were and what some of the not so good things or the challenging things were but that, that that was that person's like story and that you can sort of see their life as it was, but also see sometimes the astrology of it and how um, some of that was mapped out through the astrology and, and wove that the planets sort of wove the narrative of the person's life, like throughout their story in a, in a very interesting and beautiful and sort of like poetic way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that ultimately I think is the most important point at the end of all of this is just that to whatever extent astrology can do that or at least can give astrologers some a different perspective or a perspective that's useful from in that way when looking at the topic of death that it can be useful or helpful or healing um, while there's probably for sure negative applications of that or ways that it can be problematic or ways that astrologers could do things unethically or where it could be inappropriate to apply, um, you know, for us as professional astrologers, there's um, a way in which it helps us make sense of both our lives as well as the lives of the people around us, and that there's something helpful and beautiful about that. And um, and yeah, it's a major part of being an astrologer. Yeah, absolutely. And it's even though it is such a sensitive and delicate topic, it's very important to discuss and. Yeah, I think it's just good to pave that way for future discussions to occur. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks for having this discussion with me. Well, my pleasure. Yeah, thank you for um, thank you for initiating it and for holding the space. Yeah. Well, thanks also for um, being willing to do it, sort of somewhat very impromptu because we didn't plan this out. We were just like yeah. talking this morning, and I'm just like, that's it. Like that's the topic. Like. Let's let's do it. Let's talk about that. Like, because we were having that conversation casually, but then I I just because I'd already been thinking about that actually as a topic the past few months. I just didn't have anybody to have that conversation with, and it and I didn't know how to approach it. But this was this was perfect. I'm glad. Yeah, and I'm I'm always down <laughs> to talk okay. about death or any of the other unfortunate topics in life. Got you. All right, I'll keep you on speed dial for for that <laughs> yeah. uh, for the next. I've got other difficult, negative, terrible topics. So next time you're in Denver, we'll figure out the next one, like the astrology of like Ebola or something like that. I can't wait. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thanks a lot for joining me. Um, What's your website again? Uh, Honeycomb.co. Okay, cool. For the Honeycomb Almanacs and Calendars. Yeah. You could go to MadelineDeCotes.com if you want to, but it's kind of an outdated graphic design portfolio at this point in time. Maybe that will change in the future. Cool. Well, I'll put a link to that in the description below this video uh, or for this episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, otherwise, I guess that's it. So yeah. thanks. Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including patrons Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Jeannie Marie Kaplan, and Melissa Delano. 
If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. In exchange, you'll get access to some great subscriber benefits, including early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the forecast each month, our monthly Auspicious Elections podcast, which is only available to patrons, a whole exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast that's for patrons, or you can even get your name listed in the credits. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking for a reliable astrologer to get an astrological consultation with, then we have a new list of astrologers on the podcast website that we recommend for readings. Most of the astrologers specialize in birth chart readings, although some also offer synastry, rectification, electional astrology, horary questions, and more. Find out more information at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of Solar Fire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine, which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. And the Northwest Astrological Conference, which is happening both in person and online May 23rd through the 27th, 2024. You can find out more information at norwac.net.